sometimes I joke that my job is essentially a translator from Yingwen to Huayu. <laughs> Other times is between you know government A and government B, and also lots of times even within a company, a product and engineering team, and the compliance and the policy team, and the legal team, and the go to market and business team. We all come from different experiences and how we see the world. What's really important is how do we be able to speak each other's language to build common ground and then to shape the strategy of what we want to build going forward. When we do that right, I think magic can happen. This is Startup Island Taiwan, the channel all about cutting edge technology, influential global tech players, and Taiwan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Startup Island Taiwan podcast. I'm Chico from Business Next Media, and I'm one of the hosts today. And I'm Wendy, journalist from Business Next Media. So it's our first episode co-hosting Startup Island Taiwan podcast, Wendy. I know if this partner thing doesn't work out, maybe the last episode. Yeah, if you hate us, let us know in the comments, please. And subscribe the podcast because we will definitely improve. All right. Um, I closely follow up crypto news, even though it has been a bear market since a year and a half ago. A lot of new things still pop up, such as well, um, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried's fraud trial just started two days ago, and FTX exchange used to be a leading centralized cryptocurrency exchange. Well. At the same time, Circle's Europack stablecoin EURC is now available on Stellar Network. So speaking of Circle, we have our special guest today, Yankee Chen, Vice President Strategy and Policy for Circle. Welcome to the show. Hello, good to see you. Circle is the digital asset company behind the 25 billion USDC and also the second largest stablecoin on the market after Tether's USDT. Yankee, can you briefly introduce yourself to our audience first and brief us through what Circle's recent projects and the overview of Circle's business? Sure. And again, thanks for having me on um, this this podcast. I'm really excited about this. Um, so for me, um, I joined Circle um, around six months ago um, as their vice president for strategy and policy, and I helped the company think about our regulatory approach um, and our market strategy across Asia. Uh, I'm based in Singapore, but I've worked、um, in different parts of Asia as well as in the United States, where I'm originally from. Can you brief us through what Circle's recent project, the parts that you can speak publicly, and also the overview of Circle's business? Because I think USDC this concept is kind of a new concept for our audience. Yes, we'd be happy to. So Circle, we need to take a step back. Circle is a Web three infrastructure company. We provide really three sets of products. The first one, which you mentioned, is our stablecoins USDC. The US dollar stablecoin is our、uh, primary product, and it is really the digital dollar on the internet.、Um, I think at the opening you mentioned EURC as well, which is our euro-denominated stablecoin. So that would be the second one. Aside from our stablecoin offerings,、uh, we also have、um, for our customers various. On-ramp and off-ramps around financial institutions around the world, so that they are able to get USDCs no matter where they're at in different parts globally. The third part, which we're very excited about, is our Web3 services offering. So these are kind of like Amazon Web Services (AWS).、Um, it's a software as a service that supports 
Web2 companies on their transition towards Web3. And there we see that in this next phase of growth, there will be many, many traditional companies as well as financial services companies that want to move into Web3, but they're unable to do so because they may not be familiar. How do you program on a blockchain? How do you deal with security? How do you deal with all the various challenges that they are not exposed to directly yet? What we're providing through our Web3 services is really a set of API tools, a way that Web2 developers and programmers are able to interact and be able to build on the blockchain, but really using the existing apps and UXs that they have. So we're really excited about this next phase of growth and what this next um, stage will bring in terms of um, use cases and solutions. Talking about your primary and iconic product, USDC, can you share us some real-life examples like in the future, what kind of financial situation will change based on the USDC products? Of course. I mean, first of all, USDC has been around for over five years now. Uh, we actually just hit our anniversary in August of this year, so we're very excited about that. Over these five years, we've seen close to $11 trillion worth of um, transaction that's been done on-chain. So this is not a novel new thing per se, but it's actually been around for some time and a number of transactions have been done already today. There are a couple of ways um, that USDC are used and actually a lot of them are really relevant for Asia. So I, I think about it in this way. There are three main things that we need to think about. One is trade. Second is trade finance. And third is remittances. Now, on the trade part, as we all know, here in Asia, the economies are very exposed to trade. When you think of the trade to GDP ratio of Asian economies is actually much higher than the United States or for Europe when you remove intra-Europe trade because they're based on the same currency. Because of that, what it means is for a micro or small business in Taiwan, your customers may be in Japan or in Korea, and your vendors, aside from being in Taiwan, could also be in Vietnam and Thailand. So you're collecting yen or collecting Korean won, and then you have to pay your vendors in Thai baht or Vietnamese dong. All of these are transaction costs that small and micro um, businesses have to carry and pay for, and not just in the FX costs, but also in the settlement time. Asian businesses are essentially carrying a higher share of that than an equivalent business in the US um, or in Europe. So that's one big part I think that we can help unlock. The second piece is around trade financing. The Asia Development Bank, uh, which is an international organization, has estimated that around $510 billion worth of trade doesn't happen because the enterprises are unable to get the credits on the loans that they need to actually produce the good and to ship the goods. So think of an automaker. You have to build a car. You have to put up capital to actually build that car, do the engineering for it, and to ship that car. And you actually don't receive payment until the car arrives on the shore somewhere halfway around the world. You as a business is carrying that cost until the goods get to the other side. So trade financing um, is an area that we believe between DeFi and the use of USDC is able to open up more financing for these um, small and micro-enterprise businesses. Thirdly is remittance. Here in Asia, we have a large migrant population that move from one country to another, depending on the season and the type of work. They are maybe working in 
uh, where I'm at in Singapore or in Hong Kong, in Japan, but they may be from the Philippines or Thailand or Pakistan, really all sorts of places around the world. And the World Bank has estimated that an average $200 remittance costs around 5.5-5.6% to move. That's around 12 bucks for a $200 remittance. That's a really expensive cost. And these are the most vulnerable part of the population. So here, I believe that the use of stable coins and the blockchain technology in general can help lower the cost and increase the speed at which uh, people are able to get their money and they're able to get it straight into their cell phones instead of having to go to a bank or somewhere else. USDC remaining as the top three cryptocurrency in terms of trading values. Plus, Circle just launched the Euro stablecoin EURC. Could you share a bit about the overview of Circle's recent developments and initiatives? How are these shaping the future trajectory of the company? The EURC, of course. So I think one way to think about um, just in general on stablecoins is the fact that um, they are digital dollars on the internet. And what we've done is we've launched on a number of different blockchains where these USDC tokens are natively issued. And the various blockchains matter because that's where the developers are built, right? So essentially, we have, in another word, digital dollar protocol that can move real value of money from one location to another geographically or from one chain to another. So a developer today may be on Ethereum. But the next day, they're on Arbitrum, or the day after, they're on Polygon. It really depends on where they want to build, uh, and they have to make certain design and security, as well as economic decisions on deciding which chain to build. We try to meet our developers and customers where they are by being on as many chains as possible. We take the same approach, not just with USDC, but also uh, with EURC. So you mentioned that we've launched EURC on Stellar. Stellar is one of our many blockchain network partners that we work with. One really interesting one that I didn't talk about earlier on is actually on the use of USDC for humanitarian aid. How do you provide aid directly in recipients' hands in a safe manner? We partner with, for example, um, UNHCR. The UNHCR is the High Commission uh, Refugees, together with Stellar, as well as a MoneyGram, where the UNHCR is providing aid to Ukrainian refugees who are displaced from the war in Ukraine. So this is a really interesting challenge. How do you find ways to get aid into the hands of the most needed, but they are not necessarily in any particular locations or where they are, their banks may not be working. So it turns out that with the use of a Web3 wallet, with the use of a network like Stellar, UNHCR was able to move USDC and have that be the aid instrument that ends up on the cell phones of individual refugees. The refugees are then able to send money to their loved ones, no matter where they're at. Today, they may be in uh, Kiev in Ukraine. Another day, they may be in Germany and they may move around. They may just send money to their, their neighbors and friends. Another piece would be to off-ramp. And there we work with um, MoneyGram, where the holders of the USDC can show up at MoneyGram and offload from a off-ramp from a USDC into the local currency of their choice, wherever they may be. You mentioned that um, Asia is a important um, scenarios for using stablecoin. I'm curious, will there be stablecoins packed to Asian fiat currencies? 
Um, absolutely. I think this is a new form of technology and a new representation of digital currency, right? I think in the previous cycles, people have talked a lot about um, various uh, digital currencies, usually around Bitcoin, ETH, and others. Um, and what we're seeing really is the effectiveness of an instrument like a stablecoin, a true stablecoin um, that's backed one-to-one, fully reserved, um, with reserve held in very credible financial institutions. We believe that U.S. dollar is probably the most popular one because so much of international trade um, still happens in the dollar. In cross-border transactions, that's where a lot of the fees are hidden for both the businesses as well as for the user. So that is a really, really large opportunity. That said, I think there will be lots of other stable coins happening around the region. Um, and there are lots of other companies that are looking to build in these respective countries. And we look forward to, to working closely with them. Thank you just share us the exciting user case and new technology. And actually, Taiwan also played an important role in Circle's product lines. Circle has acquired Taiwanese startup Cybago last year. And I want to ask Yankee, how did Circle notice Taiwan's technology and what kind of role does Taiwan play in Circle's futures strategy? First of all, you know, I'm someone that have worked in technology for some time. Prior to Circle, um, I worked at Google. It is hard not to recognize Taiwan as a real player in the technology space, both in terms of the talent, the people, the raw research and development that happens in Taiwan, and just the, the grit, ability of the Taiwanese people to take that technology, essentially put it in a bottle or most likely in a chip and be able to send that out to the rest of the world. Um, so it's hard not to recognize Taiwan, given all um, it's done and it's contributed to the technology industry as a whole, way before even digital assets were created. So that's first and foremost. Second is, when I talked about some of the product offering, I talked about Web3 services. And Web3 services is really important because in this next wave of growth, we expect to see many Web2 companies make that transition into Web3 and try to find ways to integrate different parts of the web technology onto their existing application and our platforms. However, they don't have necessarily the developers to do it, the know-how, or the direct technology to do that. What Cybavo offers um, in the Web3 services is exactly that technology to help them make that transition. So when we looked at where the industry was going to go, we saw Cybavo as a key player to help with the adoption of USDC as well as Web3 applications all around the world. And we believe that with the integration of some of the Cybavo technology um, and the talent, we're able to advance the future of blockchains and Web3 and really increase, help us achieve our mission of raising global economic prosperity through the frictionless exchange of value. Uh, and they, the wallet technology is key to that. And I want to ask that, because during the bull market around two years ago, Web2 companies are rushing into Web3 space. And you also mentioned that Circle now has the API toolkit for Web2 company to transist into Web3. So how does Circle plan to advance this objective amidst the challenge of the current crypto bear markets? And are there any examples that you successfully help this Web2 company transitions to Web3? First, I think we're actually in a crypto spring instead of crypto winter. In particular, here in Asia, we're seeing 
just enormous amount of progress that's being made across the businesses as well as in the regulatory space. If you were to wind back the clock, say six months to a year, it would be hard to imagine a world where there are actually regulatory clarity in a number of jurisdictions around the world. First, here in Singapore, there's clear regulation under the Payment Services Act of digital payment tokens. Then we also saw Japan issuing its guidance on stablecoins and very clear in terms of how that functions. Hong Kong is in the process of writing its rules that hopefully we publish by the end of this year of what their digital asset um, policy would look like, as well as stable points. Europe has also passed um, its own regulation known as MICA, the Markets and Crypto Assets Bill. And that sets in motion regulatory framework in one of the largest markets in the world. And then, of course, there's the United States. And certainly, there's a lot of tension within the U.S. on what will happen there. But in this last couple of months, we saw the passage of two bills, a bill on the market infrastructure and a bill focused on stablecoins passed out of the House Financial Services Committee that will probably get debated um, in the next couple of months, hopefully when you know House is able to get back in session um, with the new speaker to move that forward. But this is not what people expected six months or even a year ago. We're actually having a much more clarity around the regulation um, than people actually thought we would be back then. What does that mean? The regulatory clarity, together with the Web3 technology that a company like Sababo offers, creates certainty for traditional companies to move into Web3. As you mentioned, Wendy, during the bull market, many of the traditional companies were trying to build on blockchain. All of those projects either stopped or paused during the bear market, but there are others that have continued to build quietly during this time. One of those was the fact that Citadel Securities, Fidelity, and Charles Schwab had launched a decentralized exchange. Like that is fascinating. These are not, you know, startups. These are longtime financial services players with huge market volume in their regular business, and they're launching digital asset exchanges. That tells us something in terms of where the market's going to go. And between the regulatory clarity and the Web3 services technology offering, it will make it easier for other Web2 companies to move because now they know what they hold on their balance sheet, what it means to have digital assets, how do you account for it from an accounting perspective, um, what are the requirements around custody. Like These are all things that will provide greater clarity that especially public listed companies who are responsible to their shareholders and their boards will have to be able to address, and the regulatory clarity answers that. The technology part that allows them to integrate the Web3 components into their existing applications and platforms. An example of this um, is Grab here in Singapore. A couple of weeks ago, we announced our partnership with Grab, where Grab is using Circle and Cybabo's Web3 wallet and integrated it into their mobile platform. They're doing a pilot here in Singapore where they are uh, partnering with a couple of different firms um, under an initiative from the Monetary Authority of Singapore called Project Orchid for purpose-bound money. And through that project, they're able to test use cases of digital money for specific type of transactions. Um, and this is a process here in Singapore, the Singapore government trying to testing and learning and trying to figure out how do we learn about 
the use of digital payments in this new format in retail form? And how do you think about it? A way to help money be programmable, which will be really fascinating in terms of the next cycle of development um, in digital currencies. You talk about government regulatory. I just think of that a few years ago, government from different countries keep promoting the CDBC,、uh, which is government issued digital asset. I just curious, what's CDBC different from USDC, and what's the progress of CDBC, and what kind of collaboration USDC can have with CDBC? That's a great question and one that I get a lot. I think first and foremost, it's important to think about what CBDCs are and what stablecoins are. So CBDC is what we would call M zero. These are things that are liabilities on the central bank, whereas stablecoins are probably M two. There are private issues and liability on the issuer. Now these create different questions from a policy perspective in terms of who holds them, why you would hold them, what do you use them for. There are a number of CBDC pilots that have been happening around the world, but over the last two years、um, since they've talked about launching, I think only a handful have launched. Primarily in some Caribbean countries, I think one or two African countries.、Um, I think in mainland China there is a pilot, but not a full、uh, launch program yet.、Um, so I think CBDC is still in its early days. There's questions around what type of CBDC is it a wholesale? Is it a retail? There are lots of questions around technology. What sort of change should you be building on? Is it a public chain or a private chain? How do you deal with security questions? There's issues around policies like privacy. How much privacy protections can you have?、Uh, what are the appropriateness of that? Then do you want particular government to hold that? And depending on the type of you know location, the government and its、um, regulatory framework. So I think there will be a role for stablecoins over the long run because for millennia,、uh, money was actually private. Like when you think of the early days of Chinese history,、um, they were actually merchants that issue money, right? And it was you know physical gold or various precious metals that you would actually deposit、um, at a merchant, and the merchant will give you notes that represents. Um, that you have, however much ounces of gold or copper sitting at that merchant, and as long as that merchant is a credible merchant, is large enough, people will take those notes as essentially value that you can use to pay other merchants with. So when you like, what's really intriguing is that actually the Chinese society has a lot of history with this, and we're thinking through in this new world of okay, so we have different forms of money on blockchains. One of those that exists today. Happens to be stablecoins, and as I mentioned, for USDC, there are 11 trillion dollars worth of transactions that has taken place、uh, with the stablecoin, and it is regulated, you know, in the United States,、uh, and I can walk through that. And it's a really a credible way of moving value on the internet that really exists today. So I think there are probably ways that CBDC, stablecoins, other form of digital money could coexist. But I think the market will probably decide on what's best, what's ease of use, what's on more chains.、Um, how do you get it into wallets and able to move it across wallets? Questions around privacy and composability. These are things that will be top of mind for the users and developers that will be building using these tools. I think MG is not only an economist and also a historist. It all makes much more sense to us now. <laughs> Thank you. Well,、um, you also mentioned that many countries are coming up. With the regulations on blockchains and cryptos, the question I have is that regulation varies from countries to country, 
And will that make stablecoin just like fiat currency, like more controlled by the governments, by politics and economies of different regions? It's really challenging to separate money from politics and governments. I think for at least most of modern history, for commerce to be global and interoperable, you need government credibility and you need governments to cooperate. It takes some work for a currency to be recognized globally. It didn't happen overnight. So I understand, I think, the sort of the thinking with uh, some of the crypto natives and the reasoning for it. But I think it will take some time to get to that point. I think in the near term, what I expect to see is really companies are able to straddle traditional finance with uh, Web3 finance. Uh, and I think we're well positioned to do that as Circle. The way we kind of think about what we do is that we are the digital dollar on the internet and you understand what that dollar is worth yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We have really good structures around how our reserves are set up. They are, you know, invested in three months or shorter U.S. treasuries managed by BlackRock and custody at Bank of New York Mellon and our cash is rest with uh, some of the largest globally systemic important banks in the world. And I think that gives a level of trust to our customers and our users that they know what they're holding, they know what's backing it, and they can use it for transactions online as if it's a fiat dollar. We know that Yankee has a very interesting background. You just say you work for the government before and also work for Google. So you kind of know the different part of this crypto work and think of different angles. So I think we need to talk about more about your diverse career. Your career spanning from the White House National Security Council to Google and now Circle. How have this experience shaped your perspective on the intersection of finance and technology and public policy? Um, my career has been at that really interesting intersection of economics and finance with technology and an international public policy. Each one of these are different worlds, and they intersect perhaps in the technology and finance side. So you have fintech, and you may have a you know economics and policy side as an international economic policy, and sometimes technology and policy, but rarely do they kind of come together. And here, um, in at least in this space, those three actually come together, um, and it's absolutely fascinating. A couple of things to think about is that in the world of finance and economics, it is a regulated space, right? It has a lot of regulation and there should be a lot of regulations around it um, because it's meant to protect people's savings and money. So that's really important. Um, there are prudential controls. There are things around compliance, around know your customers um, that really ensures that the financial system is sound and is safe. Technology, on the other hand, is meant to disrupt. A lot of what it tries to do is to change the status quo and shift business models. So there's an inherent tension that I see, at least, between the technology side and the finance and economic side. But when the two kind of come together and you have really thoughtful people that try to address the needs of finance and economics with technology, a whole world of new possibilities would open. And I think crypto, digital asset, is in that space. And I hope to bring my experience, not only in the economic space and in the technology space, but also having worked in the government in the U.S. in international forums like the G20 and G7, 
and kind of bring that perspective to the conversations in the fintech world. Sometimes I joke that my job is essentially a translator from Yingwen to Huayu. <laughs> Other times is between you know government A and government B, and also lots of times even within a company, a product and engineering team and the compliance and the policy team and the legal team and the go to market and business team. We all come from different experiences and how we see the world. What's really important is how do we be able to speak each other's language to build common ground and then to shape the strategy of what we want to build going forward. When we do that right, I think magic can happen. You're the transistor of Circle. <laughs> there are there are many.、Um, Circle has a lot of great talent, so I'm just one of one of many. Well, then six months ago. How did Circle come to your site? Why did you decide to go into this Web three space? A lot of people ask me this, especially people in Asia who are rightfully, you know, just amazed by companies like Google and Facebook or Apple. Right? They have such huge presence. So to them,、um, it's sort of like you're giving up the equivalent of、um, the iron rice bowl, right? <laughs> the Tifan line <laughs> to to jump into this crazy world. I think there's a number of reasons. First is in that Venn diagram that I talked about of finance, economics, technology, and international public policy. Web three and crypto sits right in the middle of that. Like by definition, it is a fintech that has global policy implications. So that right away was was really interesting to me. I've been thinking about the Web three space for some time from the outside, right? Sitting in the government. Sitting at a place, a Web two company like like Google, and to be honest, I'm mostly a crypto skeptic, right? I, I looked at a lot of this, and like, this does not make sense. Like from a, at least from a traditional finance economic model, it's hard to make sense out of a lot of these tokens、uh, and what they do. But you know, I continue to just read about it, talk to friends, and learn. And then、uh, when Circle reached out to me, I really then spent some time on stablecoin. And really thinking about okay, what is the role of this, and how does this fit in, not only in the quote unquote Web three world, but for the real world economy? What does this mean for everyday people and businesses? What does this answer? And the more I thought about it, the more excited I got because at the end of the day, we haven't seen major improvements in the way money moves and the way money is used for a really long time. Asia happens to be a place where there are lots of innovation around finance. So, sitting here in Singapore, they were one of the early movers around what we call RTGS, real-time growth settlement system, the ability to pay one another or pay businesses in real time that settled at that moment in time, as opposed to end of day, and you can do it with a phone number or an email address. Right, fascinating. This actually started. Really, the credit goes to India with this UPI platform. Now you see it not just in India and Singapore, but in Hong Kong with Faster System, with Thailand, Promptpay, in Malaysia you have Do It Now. So Asia has actually been leading the effort on this movement of money. Now the challenge is that these really work largely domestically. So within a particular economy, you can move money easily. Singapore have been leading an effort bilaterally with some countries to link up the payment systems. So, say between Singapore's PayNow 
with Thailand's PromPay or between Singapore's PayNow with India's UPI. Those are good, but it actually takes a lot of bilateral work for that to happen. Um, and then system integrations, because they're individually essentially like wall gardens. What stablecoin is able to solve is actually that cross-border piece and to be able to solve it in a faster, easier, and cheaper way than what we have today. So when I looked at that and, and kind of understood, okay, like here's here's what we can do in terms of cross-border payments and then the ability to program money to have if-then statements for how money moves would speed up automation and contracts in an enormous way. And then you think about how a USDC as a protocol that works across different blockchains with different type of wallets, with different type of merchants and users, then I got to like have a taste of like, this is really, really big and it has the ability to really go global in scale. And of course, the ability to improve the economic opportunity of billions of people around the world, it's something that, you know, you have to do, you have to try, <laughs> right? Even if it's not a billion, if it's, you know, you get to 500 million, that's still quite an achievement. But I do think that billions is possible, but it's going to take time. I don't think it's an overnight thing. I feel your enthusiasm for the crypto world. So I kind of have a, maybe a silly question for you. What would it be like for this stable coin 10 years after? So Circle's been around for 10 years. USDC, five years. So this USDC journey has only been five years in the making. And we are really at the beginning stages of what Web3 and what digital asset really means. We're in the, the example that um, some of our leadership talks about it is that we're in the dial-up stage of the internet, right? So imagine 10, 15, 20 years ago when you have to get a modem and you go at you know, 9, 9.6K, 14.4K was a huge bump and you were doubled up to 28.8 and then 36.6. It was amazing. And then broadband came about. So we're, we're still in that early stage of dial-up internet, essentially. I think in 10 years' time, hopefully, we get to a spot where um, it's ubiquitous to send money like you send email. You just type in an address and off you go. And the security, the trust, the insurance of delivery, all of that is all built in and done, right? And it arrives in a wallet on your phone or whatever device we'll use, maybe as a VR headset. But that's, I think, what I think we would get to. And to be honest, if we're successful, if this industry is successful, we actually don't talk about things like stablecoin or Web3. It just becomes money, digital dollars. It becomes the internet as opposed to Web2 or Web3. I think we're in that transition phase and it's going to take time to make that change. I already picked the first line for this podcast. You saying you were the crypto skeptics. <laughs> I'm sure now I'm going to get a bunch of questions from people within, within the company and others like, what are you doing here? <laughs> you already draw on the current developments in the Asian Pacific region, like Thailand and Hong Kong, Singapore. They all have this Web3 space going on. And I heard that some GameFi has huge potential in Asia. Besides GameFi, um, what other sectors in Web3, like particularly booming in Asian markets? So, I mean, at the earlier on, I talked about trade, trade financing and remittances. There will be, I think, a lot of different projects that will launch are covering those. And 
I think the remittance is, is particularly large, especially for everyday users. Um, how to move money between friends and family on the trade part. It will probably take a little more time because you need um, essentially companies that help connect small, medium-sized businesses. But we're seeing some of that. For example, Shopify and Solana Pay have launched a partnership where you can pay using USDC, right? And Shopify is a large global e-commerce marketplace, right? So, so to the example I gave about based in Taiwan, selling to a customer in Korea, Japan, and your vendor in Thailand and Vietnam, you're going to see some of these play out already. I think the other piece will probably be some of the larger financial institutions. A lot of financial institutions still need to deal with FX or the movement of money within their various entities and then, of course, um, across borders. And there, these are not retail-facing, right? These are just regular companies. They happen to be financial services companies that need to settle trades, whether it's you know equity trades um, or fixed income trades, uh, where you're moving various value around. Uh, and there is the settlement of the particular instrument, and then there's a settlement of the fiat. And it's oftentimes they're on two different time scales. And depending on like when banks open, which markets you're in, is it T plus one or T plus two or T plus five? All of those, I think, are, are huge opportunities uh, for something like um, really distributed ledger technology to help solve. And this is an area people talk about as like the tokenization of everything. How do we think about tokenization of things like money market funds, of real estate assets, of carbon credits. These are huge uh, market opportunities that are quite unique. Uh, and I think particular in Asia, where the financial markets are not as deep and as interconnected as the US, um, this provides a real, um, it's a different type of opportunity. If you think of questions like, for example, climate change, right? Right now, if you were to ask an average person what you can do on uh, climate change, you have your, you know, reducing your use, recycling, et cetera. And then you can probably, you know, on your flight, put an extra, you know, five to $10 to offset your, your carbon credit. But what if you want to do that on a larger scale, not tied to your flight? How do you buy carbon credits? You really can't as an individual investor or something that you believe in that you wanted to do. Um, I think things like tokenization and tokenizing carbon credits is one area to do that. That you can make it really accessible to people no matter where they are around the world and where the credit can be produced, um, whether you're in Taiwan or in Thailand or in Indonesia. You can help unlock uh, sort of that asset and allow for investments to come in to address those. All right. Today we talk about stablecoin and some cool products about Circle and the future of stablecoin. I really feel Yankee's passion for this Web3 crypto world. After I talk with Yankee, I learned more about the future that I never expected before. Thanks, Yankee, for coming to our show. Yeah, we are all looking forward to the crypto summer to come. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening to Startup Island Taiwan podcast. We update every two weeks and talk about Taiwan's startups and technology. See you next episodes. See you.